Hey, okay. Yes, we are on Facebook, and it looks like it's going well. Uh, so, yes, we are live everywhere. Okay, well, we are live everywhere, and I'll repeat what I just said uh, a little bit. We have this uh, new system, not new, it's our old system, but it, it's been in storage because we've... Uh, uh, left our former abode that actually fits into the lecture there uh, and so uh, we're trying to take care of the sound problem and it's just taking me a long time because uh, that's the equipment is something I'm most familiar with but I just haven't had a chance to do it okay because I've had all those operations and, and the like really fast note today whenever you can Israel is is in a military conflict, whenever Israel is in a military conflict, that is extraordinarily important to uh, Scripture, to students of the Bible. They've been hit with 3,000 rockets, uh, and those rockets are aimed at, at uh, what's called soft targets. They're trying to kill women and children, schools, synagogues. And Israel is battling them back. And uh, it's interesting to me to see... Because this is, we're watching Genesis 12:3 pour out in front of us. That is, uh, that is the blessing of Abraham, the blessing of Abraham of Israel. And God will bless those who bless Israel, and He will curse those who curse Israel. And we have uh, the American news media is rushing to curse Israel, condemning Israel. Uh, that also is, of course, uh, the left. This fascinates me. Can it really be this obvious? And it seems to me that it is. Uh, Matthew uh, um, uh, twenty-five thirty-one. I'm sorry. Yeah, twenty. No, 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 no. Where am I here? Yeah, twenty-five thirty-one through forty-six. Sorry, I had to think about it. The goats are on the left. The sheep are on the right. The goats are cursed. The sheep are blessed. And it's all about Israel. The it's a post-tribulational uh, valley of Jehoshaphat. That's where the Gentiles, all Gentiles, will be assembled by Christ when he defeats the Antichrist. He will have the judgment of the Gentiles. Again, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. And, and you, of course, note Matthew 25, 41, which is the lake of fire. And so he puts the two, the judgment of the Gentiles, the Gentiles that cursed Israel during the tribulation, will be cursed by God, Genesis 12, 3. And I, I see it every day. And the left of this country, the, 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 not the right, are cursing Israel. And I find that really interesting. How did they get, how did it, how did they choose to call themselves the left? For any, but they did. And that's fantastic. Like I said, uh, the, Consequences to cursing Israel is eternity, eternal. Okay, enough of that. Just pay attention. Whenever Israel is in a war of any kind, even a skirmish like this, this is not an insignificant event here. Whenever they are, it, it could lead to the Ezekiel 28, or 38, sorry. Okay, May the 16th, 2021, lecture discussion number 138. I have it on the board here. Now, I don't know if Supper Dave can get a good picture of all of that. It's not necessary, but it's the best we can do. So you can tell what we're up against today. So lecture number 138 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, 1 Kings 13, 2 Kings 23. I have not forgotten about the unnamed prophet and Josiah, in case you're thinking that I have. 
The plan today is to return to the list. This is the list of uh, 137, lecture number 137. And that list was a procession of possibilities as to this transversing of the angelic dominion and the human animal kingdom. In other words, this interaction, if you will, this intermeshing, uh, the fact that the angels could come into contact with the physical. If you want to prefer to think of it that way, the spiritual reality and the physical reality or the organic reality. This would be Ezekiel 28, for example, and Genesis 1, chapters 1 through 3. So I have these two dynamics. I have these two, what we think are separate but aren't really separate structures. And I have been busy constructing the previous couple of weeks uh, the supposition that there has been a significant symbiosis as opposed to antibiosis, in case you're wondering. But there's been a significant symbiosis in the preceding millenniums, both antediluvian and postdiluvian. What I mean by that, antediluvian is pre-flood, postdiluvian post-flood. So, and I submit the evidence for symbiosis is scripturally unassailable, and that creates a conditional trace, a condition traceable to a cause. What I'm saying is this, it, it, that mankind and animals had contrasting coexistence with the sons of God, the angels, both fallen and unfallen, to that of the prior two millenniums. Uh, the biblical account, in my opinion, again, is authoritative. There is no controversy here. I think it's obvious. In other words, the preceding 2,000 years, millenniums 5 through 6, we got seven millenniums. So let's just go one... Oops, I'm just going to go one through four, but I'll just write it out. One through three, four, five, six, seven, and then, of course, the eighth day, the restoration of all things. What I am saying is that these two millenniums are different than those four millenniums with regard to the angelic realm. So, millenniums five through six are a deviation from millenniums one through four. I've got microphones everywhere now, so it's not as easy. Don't flip the page. Or if you want to think of it this way, the 4,000-year period from the creation of Adam was intentionally amended, or at least put into a restrained position, therefore causing this 2,000-year parenthesis or intermission that happens to correspond to what? If you said Acts 2, you would be correct. So that's what I'm thinking, that's what I'm proposing. That's the thesis or the hypothesis. Now, to be fair, the symbiosis continues. There is symbiosis now. Genesis 28, 12 through 15, that's the ladder of, of uh, Jacob. Christ is the ladder standing above the ladder. Hebrews 13, 12, we, however, are unawares, is what it says. The plural is intentional, Hebrews 13, 2. So 28.12 of Genesis through 15, Hebrews 13.2 tells us that the symbiosis of the angelic realm and the humanity realm or the animal realm, both are, both are uh, organic or physical, if you will. It's still occurring, but uh, it is not anywhere near what it was, as I'm proposing, in the first four millenniums. And that raises a billion questions. Okay, maybe not a billion, half a billion, a plentitude. How's that? There's a lot of questions now. And it just so happens because I'm the HTRP, I have an auspicious example of all these questions that start coming. Mark from Texas sent me this for my birthday, Cinco de Stevo. So that's what he did. He said, happy Cinco de Stevo. 
praying for improvements to, in your health. Thought I had kidney stone issues. I had a laser lithotripsy on a stone, on a stone about the size of a stay puff marshmallow that got out of my right kidney and a third into the way down of my right ureter about two years ago. So he and I are now best friends. <laughs> and he, what he's talking about is there's a confluence where the ureter comes out of the kidney and there's a little deep depression there. And there's an area below that uh, exit area and there's, of course, the larger area of the kidney above. And if you get one that gets a large stone, gets in, into that ureter and gets stuck in there, then you have to have it, a laser lithotripsy or an extracorporeal shockwave lithotripsy. He said, that, and he said that it, uh, two years ago, and it got hung up and could go no further. But my doctor and I thought it would never be able to get out of the kidney, but it did. At least you're passing yours. Well, I'm passing some of them. Obviously, I've had four surgeries to get some that won't come out. But Jiminy, so very many, he said. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm up to 96 now. And it's really tough. I don't know how to, I, you folks out there, I'm not trying to diminish it in any way. There's other people that have as many as I have and I find them on the internet and it is it is a tough thing to do it, deal with. He says, uh, I got way behind on your sermons and just recently started catching up. Your discussion on 360 day Hebrew years struck me. <coughs> Excuse me. I know that supposedly during the Babylonian captivity, the Jewish captives adjusted their calendar to better fit what they learned from Babylonian astronomers. And that's absolutely true. They became more accurate about keeping intercalary months every two or three years to adjust their lunar calendars for the cycle, solar cycle to keep the seasons from drifting through the lunar calendar. The Muslims never do this with the 354-day calendar, and consequently they have Ramadan drift through all the seasons over a period of about 33 years. All of that, um, absolutely the case. But the Jewish calendar is supposed to start when the barley is ripe. Barley is ripe, correct? So it gets adjusted with an intercalary month that corrects the shortfall caused by nominal 360-day years. I know that the Hebrew-Jewish calendar has gone through revision since the Silicon era, but but even going back to the time of the prophets, weren't they adding an occasional Adar 2 to keep Nisan 1 in tune with the barley turning ripe? Those occasional extra months every three years or so would make the total days of 483 years longer than 173,880, wouldn't they? Curious to hear what you have to say about this. Wish I hadn't got so behind my podcast. Could could have been a way more timely question. Actually, it's perfectly timely. You can see that it's on my list here, item number P, because it connects to the indwelling mystery. And I noticed you, I put 490, 490, 490, and 483. And what Mark is doing, the question that he is asking, I know half the audience now is completely gone. They've clicked over <laughs> to Family Feud or something, and that's that's perfectly fine. I, but Mark wishes to resurrect the, the lecture that I had on the 483, uh, or I'll have to put it up here, the 483 and the 178, oh, i got to make sure, 173,880, right? Did I, guess, did I say that right? Yeah, 173,880. And that, of course, is Daniel... Uh, 7 through 10, actually, 924 through 27 specifically, but you have to go back to the Ancient of Days to really have it. That's the Hebrew calendar and the Gregorian calendar discrepancies. Uh, the intercalculated or the intercalary, I can barely say that, intercalary, I'll go intercalculated, I can do T's better than R's. That's the intercalculated month or the apagimental days. Now that doesn't mean anything, it's called the monthless days. 
these people that get involved in calendars, they, they go back into history and they find out how the calendar formed as it would. It's Babylonian lunisolar calendar influence and the barley moon harvest and Egyptian flood season. That's how they made things up. Every year the, the, the Egyptian flood season would occur. Every year the barley would ripen. And that's what Mark was referring to. And they wanted to time their calendars around those kinds of events. And they did. Obviously, the subject is attached to the 5782. What is the 5782? Well, the 5782 is attached to the 3829. And 3829 is attached to the 240, and the 240 is attached to the 210. That's what Mark is saying. That's obviously this subject. And so, so far, I know none of that made any sense to anybody. But don't worry about it. Let me explain. The 57, the 173880 is the time from the... That, that's how you time who is the Messiah in Daniel 9. You can figure out who the Messiah is by the 173880. The 5782, that is what the Hebrews say currently is the amount of years that have occurred since Adam was created, Genesis 2-7. The 3829 is when the temple was destroyed from Adam. The 240 and the 210 are the omissions or the exclusions. Uh, it gets worse. Uh, Big John from Pennsylvania. Hi, Big John. Uh, he sent me a book for Cinco de Stevo, so I got a letter and a book. Universal Information Theory, Quantum Theories, DNA Design, Consciousness, Speed of Light, Oscillation, Resonance, and Invisibility. Mm-hmm. These guys think that you love this stuff. <laughs> Is that fantastic? And those are fantastical biblical truths collected by someone who wrote the book without, that John sent me without any biblical perspective. So Big John from Pennsylvania thought that, again, the vast end, cliffside internet audience would appreciate the topics. And, and Mark from Texas believes all likewise. That's why they ask these questions. They think we're all the same. Uh, and I, I don't want to. Th- I don't want. Th- yeah, we are. We, we we really are. Mark is addressing the 490, 490, 490, 483 tribulational pattern, and also the Hebrew reckoning from Genesis 2:7, which again is 57:82. That's what he's talking about. But as you know, there's controversy. Controversy. There's a great dispute over the 57:82, whether or not it's accurate, and that's the 2:10 omission or the 2:40 exclusion. I got to invert it, but in other words, they're saying that you have to add these two, one of these two, to the 5782 in order to have the actual amount of years that have elapsed since Genesis 2:7 when Adam was formed. If you take the 210 position, you get 5992. Why is that important? Because that's really close to 6,000. And now, again, we're back to our millenniums. If you take the 240, you get 6,022. That's still extraordinary. Both of which greatly impact the the abduction of the bride of Christ. Uh, And again, along with the 5992 and the 6,022 is the 490, 490, 490, 483, and the 173, 880 days. And all of that, as everyone knows, is the ancient attempts to reconcile the Earth's rotation on its axis with the Earth's orbit around the sun. That's what calendars do. 
with the phases of the moon added in as a supplemental amusement. And that's where we get to the uh, the lunar solar cal- calendar or the lunar calendar or the helical, hel- helical calendar. Words that I've never learned. How many days does it take to go around the sun from the 8th grade science class that you had? Raise your hand if you said 365.24 days. That's correct. Uh, that'd be 365 and one quarter days. Now you know why we have a leap year every four years, right? They have to add a day in because of that particular issue. How many hours in a day? Well, it's 23 hours, 56 minutes and 4 seconds. So they're trying to reconcile all of these by having, because if you don't, if you stick with 360 days like the Hebrew did, or 354 like the Islam does, if you do that, obviously you're going to have mathematical issues. Uh, So uh, you also we have 29.53 days. If you divide that by four, you get 7.3825 days. Now you know why there's seven days a week, and you understand what's going on with the moon. Why all of these issues? And the four four nineties are of particular interest. Notice I said four four nineties because one's missing seven years. Those are four hundred ninety years, four hundred ninety years, four hundred ninety years, and four hundred eighty-three years. One's missing seven years. We know that's the tribulational period. And the four four nineties are of particular interest because it gives us insight as to how God counts, because it's his count that matters. He's the one that's going to know when it's time for the six days to be over and the seventh day, the millennium, to occur. He has that all worked out. So if we can figure out, we have insight to how God counts, and God's math, again, is without any contest, then the 4490s will provide insight into the angelic host, which is how we got to our list right here. This is an angelic host list. And we always, as I said before, everybody makes the same mistake. We assume that the angels are not involved in any of these things. And they're involved in everything. And so you have to account for that. And let me keep, go back to this. The, Satan, you see, has this problem with, with P down here, the mystery of the divine in, indwelling, which again is the 490-490-490-483, which is why Mike, Mark's letter is so wonderfully timely, even though he thought it wasn't. He has a problem with mystery number two. That's mystery number two of the 11 mysteries. Huh. The divine indwelling, that's Colossians 1.26 and Galatians, uh, I wrote it down here, I hope, uh, 2.20. And just as Satan and the Jude 6 angels, Jude 6 angels, where are they? I don't see them. Oh, right here, Jude 6 angels. Satan and the Jude 6 angels had no concept of the triunity of God. It never occurred to them that God, Genesis 1.26 and, and 3.22 and Genesis 1.1, they never had any idea that God is triune in nature. Never occurred to them. There's no possibility they could have conceived it. We can't conceive it today. They always say in philosophy, if you can imagine it, then it is true. But you cannot imagine a triune being. We can't. We can just say the words. There's no way we can imagine God's uh, structure. And so uh, they'll say that infinity isn't real because it's unimaginable as well. So you you start to see the Bible rise to the surface here in, in the sense that it is giving us information that is obviously not human conceived. So 
Just as Satan and the Jude six angels had no idea the triunity of God, they had the second mystery also caught them completely by surprise. The mystery is correspondingly unthinkable, unforeseeable. How do you, how do you even imagine this? Okay? So that's what's going on, and that's how we introduce today's lecture. Thus, welcome back to the list now. And there are some clarifications. If you remember the list from last week, it didn't look like this at all. and didn't read like this. And that was by design, because that's my nature. Huh? So today there's going to be some minor adjustments. <laughs> Not minor, but there's going to be some adjustments. There's going to be some clarifications that were intentionally not emphasized last week. And you may not be able to see them on the board. I hope you can. Let me put, let me see if I can move this. Okay, so that everybody can see down to the bottom. And if you're on the internet and you, you want to make, now you can freeze and make that list come up. I'll go ahead and leave the 483, 173, 880, 570, 82, 38, 29, 24, 240, 210 on there for you also. So. Sounds like Adam's family has. Oh, wait a minute, what have I got here? <laughs> I'm on my way to a music career right there, aren't I? It's unbelievable. I got I got percussion right here in the floor, and I've got some kind of uh, I don't know what I would call that uh, the door that needs WD-40, which is fish oil. Which is why yes. when you fish with WD-40, you spray your lures. It's not, I don't think it's legal. Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> but the fish will hit a lure sprayed with WD-40. Where am I? Everyone who has ventured into the Clipsidian sphere, sphere sorry, of repercussions has become cautious with respect to any elementary answers. I'm trying to present the position that is saying that the first four millenniums are different from the second two millenniums because... Uh, now, notice I didn't say the seventh millennium. And you can make a case that the sixth millennium reverts back to the first four. But for now, I'm saying that that's the case. But obviously, the seventh of the 483 plus seven, the seven part, is in the sixth millennium. In any event, these were different from those. And that's not a simple question. And so when you, I hope you see this and realize we're going into a tremendous amount of Scripture in order to solve it, as much of it as we can. So you have to become cautious with respect to any and all elementary answers. If you come across an elementary answer on this subject, it's going to be wrong. Are you leaving us already? Okay. I don't blame her. So this church, very Proverbs 122. Proverbs 122, I said, How long, you simple ones, I didn't say it, the Bible says it, How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? And I think that is condemnation of the church as well as condemnation of theological positions that are outside of Christianity. Proverbs 122 is the infrastructure of profitable Bible study. Included in Proverbs 122 is fools hate knowledge. Scorners delight in their mocking. Proverbs 1, 20 through 33 is a call to wisdom. Proverbs 2 is its companion, the value of wisdom. Proverbs 4, 5 exhorts us to get wisdom, get understanding. With that in mind, begin to evaluate the information on this list here from the position of someone 
and be someone who knows that there are exceedingly complex occurrences in the Bible and you and it is wise to begin to approach them that way. I'm going to describe this later on. No, I, I won't do it now. I'll, I'll do it later on. For those of you on the Internet who are just joining us, today is a list under the umbrella of the angelic timeline. This is the angelic timeline, if you wish to think of it that way. I'm, I'm charting how the angels have gone through time as much as I can. More specifically, what this is, is when was the angelic realm withdrawn from mankind? And why was the current restraint established? Why were they withdrawn? Or when were they withdrawn? And why were they withdrawn? If you want to think of it that way, that's easier said. I've been referring to the unseen aspect of the spiritual realm as a curtain, as a veil. Uh, there's a hiddenness involved now. We can't see them. This is Valerie and Anna's question. Unnamed Anna, we shall not name her ever. But it's their question, which is, why can't we see our soul? Why can't we see the angels? And what is the purpose of the angelic realm right now? What was its purpose originally? What is its purpose now? Why did it change? Did it change? But there, again, there's this hiddenness, this unseenness, and that, and clearly, Genesis 6, Jude 6, Genesis 3, 2 Kings 6, 17, all tell us that wasn't the way it was. That's the way it is. It has not always been unseen. In 2 Kings 6, 17, you remember, is Elisha, who sees and hears things that are being done, being planned by his enemies who seek to kill him. And they're doing it at a great distance, uh, and he, this Second Kings six twelve, and, and thereby Elisha is portraying the omniscience of Christ with respect to how he treated the Pharisees. There wasn't a plan or a plot that they could conceive that he didn't know about. Well, that's because he's omniscient and omnipresent, and Elisha portrays that in, in type. But Elisha prays to, to, that God opened the eyes of his fearful servant. The, the fearful servant believes he's, they're all going to die. The Syrians are going to massacre him and Elisha, and Elisha says. Praise that God opened the eyes of his fearful servant, and the servant's eyes are opened, and, they, and the servant, the fearful servant, is able to see the hidden, unseen, angelic army that is there, that has been sent. Genesis 28, 12 through 15, that's the latter. It's one of the ministries of the angels. You really see that with Michael when he rises up to protect Israel. But there's this angelic army that has been sent to Elisha and the fearful servant to protect them. And the fearful servant saw this. He saw it. The hidden was revealed, opened his eyes to see it. The veil was, was, was withdrawn. The curtain was opened. Whatever uh, metaphor you wish. And so this young man, I think, who knows who he is, but he saw the concealed, undetected multitude of soldiers. These are, this is an armed force of angels. Warriors sent to protect Elijah from the Syrian army. The mountain was full of angels and chariots of fire and horses of fire. And now you know where they got the, the, the name for the movie, right? Second Kings 2.11. And thus we have this immediate question. What is a horse of fire? Where do angels get horses of fire from? Is there a horse of fire uh, herd up there? How did it get there? Are they breeding horses of fire? How did they get horses of fire? And of course, that, that ties to Revelation when Christ comes on a white horse 
and he has an entire array of he has a, a tremendous army, uncountable army, all on horses. That's a lot of horses. Ask where they come from. And what does it mean to be a horse of fire? Now, some of you, hopefully, someday all of you are asking the correspondent question, which is, what are the New Testament complementary passages to 2 Kings 6, 15 and 18? In other words, uh, what links to 2 Kings 6, 15 through 18, where this scene of these angels occurs? Obviously, that happened in which millennium? This guy got to see... A, a mountain full of angels. Who ha, who has seen that in these millennials? Elisha had God uh, strike the Syrians with blindness in this event, reminding us of Genesis 19.11, which is the old people, the old men. How old are they? They're hundreds of years old, surrounding Lot's house, and they are blinded to the place where they stumble around and can't find the door. So that's a compliment because of Elisha having God strike the Syrians with blindness. And that sends us to Matthew 23:24, whom Christ described the Pharisees as blind guides. Matthew 26:53, of course, is Christ's rhetorical question, the calling down of the 12 legions of angels to halt the crucifixion. That also ties to 2 Kings 6:17. It is a complimentary passage. One of them. Last week, the death of the Lamb, Revelation 13:3, is a certainty. Remember us talking about that? I hope you do. It's impossible to save Jesus God from his sacrificial death. You call all the angels you want. They can't stop him from doing what he intends to do. Satan Judas did attempt to stop him. When I say Satan Judas, it's all one word. Satan Judas. Because they're combined at that time. They are intermeshed. Satan has entered Judas. They are a team, if you wish to think of that way. A duality. And they attempted to stop Christ. And they did that by throwing the Zechariah 11, 13, 30 pieces of silver to the temple potter. Not knowing something. Because when they threw the 30 pieces of silver to the temple potter, who's the temple potter? You go to Zechariah again, 11 through 13. Christ is the temple potter. He's the potter. We're the clay, right? We all know that. He is the temple potter. He's the owner of potter's field. Something again that didn't that may or may not have been known because Judas went to hang himself with Satan inside of him over the potter's field. Did he know that Christ was the temple potter and the owner of that field? He had to know something. Those are incredibly brilliant people. And again, the hanging mystery is tied to the farewell kiss. When he kisses Christ at Gethsemane, that's the farewell kiss, and it's tied to the hanging mystery. And we'll get to that as the weeks go on. In case you were wondering how all that fits together. And, and don't, listen, whenever you get into Judas hanging himself, who hung himself in, unintentionally and got, got run over, got killed by Joab? That would be Absalom, right? He had beautiful hair. He was, a be- he was beautiful with no blemish. He had long, thick, heavy, heavy, heavy hair, Second Samuel 14. Uh, 25 through 27. Samson and Ab- Absalom had their hair being cut. It included prominently in Scripture. So when you want to solve Zechariah 11:13, you're going to bring in Absalom. I- I'm wandering around a little bit, which I am prone to do. So where am I supposed to be? Second six, Second Kings 16 and 17 and its New Testament attachments. Obviously, the greatest of all the attachments of Second Kings 6 through 17 is the entire book of Revelation. 
Because what goes on in the entire book of Revelation? The Apostle John, the beloved servant, apostle of Christ, is given the same gift that was given to the fearful servant of Elisha. It's the same gift. He gets to hear. He sees the hidden angels. He gets to hear what they say. So second, uh, it's a greater, it's an elevation, which is always the case in the New Testament and the Old Testament. What happens in the New Testament is elevated almost every time. Uh, very few exceptions. Second Kings 6.17 then is somehow tied to the tribulation. Seeing those angels ties you to the tribulation. Okay. This list is the why of the hiddenness, the secretiveness, the veiling. And it's also the when. When did that happen? Why and when? When did the unfettered access of the angelic dominion end? And of course the accompaniment. Why were there fallen angels permitted in the first place to contact humanity? Both in in every possible way. They were allowed to do it. Obviously it didn't end well. Genesis 3, 4. Genesis 6, 2 through 4. Jude 6. Judges 19, 22. Where we have the sons of Belial. Uh, Judges 20, 13. More sons of Belial. It didn't go well, but they were allowed to do it. I've asked this numerous times over the course of my so-called career. Usually it's specifying Satan's allowed attacks on Job and Eve. Why was Satan allowed to do that to Job? He was given permission. He came and asked for it. It was granted to him. Did the same process happen with Adam and did it happen with Eve? Why did Satan have, have, again, the ability to do this? To rephrase it, God grants Satan the opportunity to strike Job. Why? He didn't interfere when Satan attacked Eve or the woman. I'm saying that he also uh, didn't interfere when he attacked Adam. Adam and Job are the same and that neither one was deceived. And I said that a few weeks ago. So here we are again, huh? Um, you know, why did God say, go ahead? The Satan man, the combining of the Antichrist and Satan, the havoc that they do together, the devastation they wrought during the tribulation is, of course, a definitive example of this permission, if you want to think of it that way. Yeah, you can argue for Genesis 6. Uh, Genesis 6 and the tribulation are, are literally uh, twins, if you will. Fraternal, not identical. Evil exists. Mankind is complicit at Genesis 3, Genesis 6, the tribulation, revelation. Mankind is involved in this. They're willing compatriots to the Satan man. Judges 19.21, men were enthusiastic accomplices to wickedness, and it remains so today. I pointed out, I started out, that there are those who hate Israel. They want to see Israel dead. That's a satanic position. Satan wants to see Israel dead. Revelation 12. The point is, Yehovah. A lot of people ask me, what am I saying there? I'm saying Yehovah. It's one word. Yeah, point. Yeah, point. It's kind of like Gesundheit. But, uh, the, the point at Jaya point 
the alliances between the fallen angels and humanity occurred and there was no prohibition from God until some allotted time and then he intervened. Some occurrence, and that's what this list is about again. I keep repeating it just to make sure I pound it in. Um, therefore, the central issue question from last week, lecture number 137, for those who try to keep, a, keep uh, on beam with us, when is important, when it happened is important, why it happened, however, has authority over when, because there's two whys and only one when. Why number one is why did God not initially interfere? Why number two, when God does interfere, why did he intercede at that time? So I have two things to solve those. The when is, is, as I said, is subordinate to the wise. And so we have the same list as last week with differences, the same but different. Uh, so let's go over it. The woman takes and eats the fruit. That's something that is occurring with an angelic influence. Obviously Satan. Adam takes and eats, but he's undeceived. And if he had any influence, it didn't affect him much like Job. The trial of Adam and Eve and Satan come. I'm asking, what occurrence causes this change that has occurred? And again, some of these are eliminated just really quickly, but I want them all on there because they're all significant times and things that happen. And changes happened here. And God... And some people accuse me of being hyper-dispensational here. I'm not. I'm just pointing out that these are things that are extraordinary and they caused, not caused, but there was a response to them. Not a response because God's omniscience. You get all of that? Something that I don't believe Satan ever figured out until it was too late. God is triune. God is omniscient. God's omnipresent. God's omnipotent, omnibenevolent. So I have this incredible trial of the, of the woman and Adam and Satan, and that results in the lake of fire. I've made the case that the lake of fire happens in proximity to the trial of Adam, the woman, and Satan in Genesis 3. Then there's these blood coverings. When That's, that's a, a fantastic truth, blood coverings. If you didn't know that God was triune, the blood coverings wouldn't make any sense at all. So here is Genesis 1.26 being explained to you. He takes advantage of the fact that he is triune right here. Now that's not right either because God's omniscient. He's outside of time. You get all of that. I say things because I'm an HDRP. It's kind of like a grandmaster in chess. Okay. Then we have this protective canopy over the tree of life and uh, the Garden of Eden with the cherubim involved in that. And the flaming sword. I, didn't, I left out the sword. Put the flaming sword in here. That sword's very important because you get into Revelation and you find out just how important it is. Then we have the Genesis 6, Jude 6, Nephilim Gambit. There's my chess reference. They had a plan they thought would work. It reminds me of the Pharisees. The Pharisees had all of these committee meetings and had all of these plans, and none of them ever worked because why? God is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. He's outside of time. How are you going to fool him? You can't fool him. He's unfoolable. You can't betray him. I've said that for thousands of years in his so-called career. started saying that in the early 1980s. You can't fool Christ. You can't betray him. You can deliver him because he wants to be delivered. So you he, you can't deliver him either. How heavy is he? But he allows himself to be delivered. So they have this gambit that creates that comes uh, this contamination. 
And so we have 120 years of warning. That's very significant because of this gambit. Then there's 150 days of the Noahic flood. And there's 150 days of suspended death in Revelation 9, 5 through 6. And I want to know, how does that impact the angels? Because they saw both of those. One, they're right in the middle of one of them. And the other one, they're watching. What did the angels think when God flooded the earth again? And all the people and all the animals that they had contaminated are dead. What did they think? They're involved. Don't think that they what, were they all you know, eating lunch that time. Oh, they overslept. They never saw the flood. There's 150 days of the flood. I want to know why 150 days. He repeats it in Revelation 9, 5 through 6. I want to know why. Here I've got nothing but death. Here I've got no death. What's he saying? You think it's coincidental? There's no coincidences in omniscience or are compatible with omniscience. Here we have the second Peter 2, 4 imprisonment. These angels are imprisoned. Why are they imprisoned? Who are they that are imprisoned? Then there is the incarnation, if you will, the birth of Christ, which, again, you better be careful when you start saying things about when Christ was formed, because that's heresy. He predates all time. So this is really the first advent or the first coming of Christ. Then the lamb slain, Revelation 13, 3, 1 Peter 1, 20, tells you that the lamb is slain. The concept of the slain lamb predates time. That's the crucifixion of Christ. The proclamation of Christ goes up here to 2 Peter 2, 4. That's the goat for Azazel. Leviticus 16, 8 through 10. Leviticus 16, 22. Matthew 4, 1. Mark 1, 12. Luke 4, 1. That is what Christ is. He is going into the wilderness as the, as the goat that has the sins removed from it. The other one is sacrificed. They say the, the scapegoat. It's not the scapegoat. It's the goat for Azazel. Azazel is, of course, Satan. It's a name for Satan. Just like sons of Belial or sons of Satan. So you have to learn the satanic names. And the scapegoat thing is just completely a misrepresentation of what's going on in Leviticus 16. Then we have the ascension of Christ, the high priest office. He ascends, right? Hebrews 6, 28, 6. This is Melchizedek. And of course, out of this comes the coming of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, Acts 2.2. Then we have this mystery of the hanging death of Judas going to his own place. The only person of whom it is said in all of history of all of mankind who went to his own place when he died. His own place. Place is his. Acts 1.25. Makes you wonder, how did it become his place? When did it become his place? Who's involved in the in the birth of Judas? Ever think about that? Then we have a number O here, the parable. I should read, uh, I should have announced the number or the letters. Number O, the parable of the fallen, unclean spirit who finds no dry places. Matthew twelve forty three. P is the mystery of the divine indwelling. Galatians 2.20, uh, Colossians 1.26-27. This is the tent issue that we talked about last week. Uh, Satan's indwelling problem. The 490-490-490-483. Okay, so that is, that is the, uh, the list. Wow, look at me go. I, I'm slowing down now. The indwelling mystery finds its parallel because of this tent aspect here. 
finds its parallel to the most holy place of the tabernacle. The most holy place, the tabernacle was called the tent of Moses. And the divine indwelling has a relationship to the tent of Moses. Do you not know that your body is a tabernacle, is the tabernacle, represented by the tabernacle? And that's one of the scriptures that uh, ties you here. And so, the most holy of the tabernacle was the holy of holies where the ark resided, where God was. So the indwelling, who is God, in us is, excuse me, (coughs) is directly related to the most holy place of the tabernacle or the tent of Moses. And remember last week, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 4, while we were still in this tent, or while we're still in this tent, we groan. And that obviously is our body. That takes you again to the tabernacle of Moses. Oketerion. Oketerion is the Greek word there. And it can mean either dwelling or abode or body. That takes you back to Jude 6, as you might remember. And then we have Numbers 22, Numbers 23, and Numbers 24 to add to the list. And it's over here in in the addendum. And that is Balaam, Balak, and the 200 million, Revelation 9, 4 angels of Adam, Genesis 12, 3. That's the addendum to all of this. You have this because the YHVH opened the eyes of Balaam. And who did Balaam see? He saw the angel of the Lord. And who is that? That is Jesus Christ himself. Second Kings 6.17 is now attached to the story of Balaam. Balaam confesses his sins to Christ. He says, he, he, he says, I have done wrong and I will turn back. How's that? Balaam's doing really well here, isn't he? But, um, Balak, King Balak of the Moabites, wanted Balaam to curse Israel. Oh, here we go, Genesis 12:3. And Christ, the angel of YHVH, tells Balaam, go ahead and go to Balak. He wants you to curse Israel. Go ahead. But you will not speak words except the words that I give you. And Moses wrote all of this. He wrote Numbers 22, 23, 24. Keep that in mind. The Holy Spirit prompted Moses to include Numbers 22, 23, 24 into the Pentateuch. Three chapters on Balaam and Balak. And they were, and again, Balaam was, or Balak was a Moabite. Who's that? That's a descendant of Lot and his daughters. The Moabites, again, Balak was their king. They were convinced that Moses and the Israelites would destroy them. They would kill the Moabites as they had the Amorites. But God had said, no, we're not going to kill Lot's descendancies. And that's Deuteronomy 2.9. Balak didn't know that. So he calls Balaam. And he says, I need you to curse Israel. That's going to work. If you curse Israel, we won't be killed by them. They will be killed by us. Balak obviously believed that Balaam was a very powerful person. He had a high opinion of Balaam's power. And Balaam did ride a donkey. Uh-huh. Okay, and, and that ties him to Matthew 21.7, Zechariah 9.9. Christ rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, as you know. Well, he's telling you, listen, I'm going to do what Balaam did. That's what's going to happen. Note that the angel of the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, Numbers 22:28. So the, the donkey's intelligence could be manifested in a way that Balaam could understand him. 
Now, I have dogs that when they want to be fed, they have ways of manifesting their intent. Uh, but the ability to speak required that the Lord take... Now you have to ask, what happened in the garden? Adam is naming each and every single animal. How's he doing that? Does he give them a card with their name on it, a little button? No, he obviously tells them, and they know their names. I have two dogs. They both know their names. And it's... Anyway, all I'm asking is, is what happened in that garden? How different was it than today? I'm asking the same thing. How different? What damage did the sin have have on on this world? We have no idea. We can't even imagine what this is going to be like. Anyway, Balaam Balaam attaches to tent and and to Genesis 12.3. 12.3 is the cursed tent, of course, comes here. The abode, the dwelling, the body. Because Balak takes Balaam to a place where Balaam sees the tribes of Israel gathered before the tent of Moses. Each man of Israel is wearing a tallet. Numbers 22.41, Numbers 23.13, Numbers 24.5. So when you see a, a Jewish man with a tallet standing in front of the temple, or I'm sorry, the tabernacle of Moses, and you see thousands and thousands of them from all the tribes, all in their little military order, they look like miniature tabernacles. And he's up on a high place and he's looking down. He sees a big tabernacle. Oops. Wow. I am on to something here. I got a chance to do something fantastic. I'm going to have to work on it next Sunday. (laughs) Excuse me. So each Israelite with a talent in front of the tabernacle looks like a miniature tabernacle. A tent. So we have this most holy place, the indwelling, the tabernacle, the tallet. And three times Balak, <coughs> excuse me, petitions Balaam to curse Israel. And three times Balaam does what Christ says to do, and that is to bless Israel. That would be a very good thing for our news media <coughs> and the movement, the communist movement in this country to recognize is not uh, going to end well. For them, they have no idea how much God of creation loves his nation of Israel, even though she has abandoned him. He will retrieve her. And Balaam says this How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? How shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? Numbers 23 8. Behold, I have received a command to bless God. I'm sorry, behold, I have received a command to bless. He, God, has blessed it, and I cannot reverse it. Numbers 23.20. So God has blessed Israel. He Blessed is he who blesses Israel, and cursed is he who curses Israel. Numbers 24.9. That is a replication of Genesis 12.3. All of that's important. But for today, Numbers 24.5 is the most important. How lovely are your tents, O Israel. That could be your dwellings or your bodies. How lovely are your bodies, O Israel. And again, that takes us to Jude 6, as you know. And that leads us to the 490, 490, 483s, because that is the angelic timeline as much as it is the human timeline. This is how God counts. Other things that are relevant, though perhaps uh, surreptitiously, 
the star fallen. I don't have it on the board. I have a bad, I don't have the star fallen. The star fallen and the key. The angel of the bottomless pit, Abaddon, is on the list over there in the addendum. The four angels and the 200 million, 200 million demons, if you will, are let loose out of a place. 200 million are released from the abyss, Revelation 9, 1 through 6. That again is 150 days of, de- of no death, Revelation 9, 13, 21. The first and second woes, which is the fifth and the sixth trumpet. A third of mankind is killed and two-thirds of mankind are not killed and they don't repent. Who kills them? Those 200 million that came out of the abyss. 200 million. Think about how many that is. When you start looking at Genesis 6 and Jude 6, you better start thinking 200 million. The point? Yeah, yeah, point. The, the emphasis, the emphasis is on the first syllable. Okay. Yeah, point. Yeah. Yeah. I think. I get to decide. <laughs> the point of all of this is to note that the star fallen is given a key to the abyss. Who is the star fallen? And the demonic horde is released. Again, this is Revelation 9, 1 through 6. The demonic horde is released in stages, two stages, two trumpets, two woes. They wanted to kill, and they wanted to kill, period, but they weren't allowed to kill. They were prohibited from killing anybody. There's 150 days of no death in the first woe. The second, the second woe, one third of humankind was murdered. And the two thirds that stayed, that survived that did not repent. Think about how unbelievable is that. But who gave the star fallen? Who is the star fallen? It's obviously Satan. So who gave star fallen, the star fallen, the key to the abyss to release these? Revelation 1.18 solves it. This is what Christ says in Revelation 1.18. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, <clears throat> I am eternal, alive forevermore. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Hades and death are not the same thing. Death, by how he describes it, is almost always the second death. That is the lake of fire, Matthew 25, 41. He has the keys to Hades, and he has the key to death. In Revelation 3, 7, he also has the key of David. He has all the keys. So if you need a key and you're Satan, unlock that horde that has been in prison. Again, when were they in prison? Exactly when? Pick a time. When did it happen? This angelic timeline. The star fallen can only get the key from him who has all the keys. Duh. The one who is both judge and jailer. The one who made the proclamation. 1 Peter 3.19, 2 Peter 2.4. Obviously, Jesus Christ imprisons. I can't see, but I think I'm good. Obviously, Jesus Christ imprisoned, binds and releases the fallen angel. When he so wills. Thank you. He is the author of time. He selects a time of his will. Note Genesis, I'm sorry, note Revelation 23 as exhibit A, how God counts again. He's going to imprison Satan for a thousand years. Why? Why a thousand years? Well, that's the exact time of the millennium. Then we get just before the eighth day, the restoration of all things, the descending of the New Jerusalem. Uh, all of that happens, but this, he has a time for this. He has a timeline. 
Okay, really fast. Of the items on the list, which one have you chosen? Which one did you pick? There's a lot. Which one possesses, do you believe, the best or most information as to when and why God himself bound the Jude 6 demonic invaders? The why of the veil. When did the veil that separated us from the from the animals, we have a separation from the animals because of Adam, but we also have a separation from the angels. When did that, when did that happen? Again, 6, 617 Kings. Most answer, when people are answering these kinds of questions, answer K. They say that the, the change happened at the crucifixion. The lamb slain. Because the veil of the tabernacle is torn then, right? Matthew 27:51, Torn asunder into two pieces. Hebrews 10, 19 through 20. The veil is ripped in half. So they say, the calculation being, as the tabernacle veil barrier to the most holy of holies is removed, then the demonic access to humanity is uh, prohibited, or the barrier, the veil is installed. So we move, remove one veil, we put another veil in. Uh, and, uh, and that would uh, include the unfallen angels as well. They're also impacted. We don't have as much access to them as, say, Adam did. I asked last week, did Adam have unfettered access? To all the angels. Did he know who they were? Did he see them? Did they talk to him? He obviously talked to Satan. How about the unfallen? How many saw him? I would tell you they all saw him formed. Other people will, will argue for El, the proclamation of Christ. When he, go, when he as represented by the goat for Azazel, sinless, having, solved, having been the solution to sin that is impossible for Satan to have figured out, uh, that is when this change occurred, if you will. This veil is installed. When he announces the only way to salvation, reconciliation, is through his blood. And, that, and therefore incorporates the blood covering. So I could tie uh, the proclamation to, to D. K, L and D would go together, for example. And the L would also incorporate P, which is the mystery of the divine indwelling something, again, that Satan could never have known. And the Protestants, these are not just the Protestants that uh, the... When I say Protestants, I mean the people who protest everything I say. They rise up right now and they advocate for M. The ascension of Christ is when it happened. And see, because it has connectivity to O and P, which is the parable of the fallen, unclean spirit finding no dry places and the mystery of the divine indwelling as well. So... Here I have the coming of the Holy Spirit. So the ascension of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit are, are connected. They're in proximity. And so they also pick up uh, O and P. So M, O, and P. And they say that's, that has the most information. And, and obviously if Christ is inside the saved, and he is, that's the, the mystery of the indwelling, and he is inside, then what happens to that person? If that is the tent of Moses, which it is, don't you know you're a temple? Don't you know your body is a tabernacle? Not temple, tabernacle. But tabernacle of Moses. Don't you know that? You're a tent. You look just like those guys that Balaam saw. If God is inside of you, God, Jesus God is inside of you, then the most holy place inside of you is impossible for a demon to enter. There's no possibility of demon possession. It's impossible. 
and thus finding no dry places, finding no rest, answering the question as to the identity of the one who swept the house clean, put it in order, Matthew 12, 43 through 45, because that's that parable. Somebody swept and cleaned that house, and a a demon could find no dry places and no rest. And then he finally is allowed to enter that house. So what is that parable telling us about the 490, 490, 490, and 483? And we're running out of time. I've got to speed up. There's a big, strong death of, of Judah's position. Going to his own place. If Judas is Abaddon, because Abaddon is the destroyer that is in the abyss. He's the king of the abyss. If the abyss is Judas's place, and it seems that it is because of Revelation 13. Uh, Actually, yeah, Revelation 13.1. Revelation 13.1 is always poorly figured out because they think people think that John is standing on the sea calling the Abaddon out of the abyss when it's really obviously Satan by the verses right in front of it. So change your Bible to, from he to Satan because most people misunderstand that he refers to Satan and they think it's the Apostle John. Anyway. Satan is standing on the sand of the sea calling out the king of the abyss, Abaddon. And if that is Judas, Acts 1.25, Revelation 9.11, then then that would fit very, very well. But many object to this because they assert that Judas is not an angel. He's not an angel because it's supposed to be Abaddon is the angel king of the abyss. But what is Judas? Again, that's why I asked those questions earlier. I I submit to you, I respond with Genesis 3.15, the seed of the serpent. What is the serpent? He's an angel, the anointed cherubim. Okay, so, and and perhaps the, uh, the default position when people don't like what they have chosen um, the one that gets gravitated to becomes the second choice, if you will, most of the time. It's not the most chosen, but it's right there in the top two after the others are subjected to scrutiny. And that's the EF view. Uh, the, the protective canopy over the tree of life and the, and the cherubim and the flaming sword and the Genesis 6, Jude 6, Nephilim gambit. I said, that's when it all changed. The counter, because the uh, lake of fire uh, up here would be the uh, the counter-positive or the counter-blow or the neutralization of the Nephilim gambit. Okay. Obviously, we have many miles remaining to get this done. So, there you go. That's how it starts. Next week, we will do our best to make it longer. Uh-huh. Yay! <laughs>